The International Baccalaureate would like to bring you a special series entitled Thinking About Day One, A Trauma-Informed Reopening of Schools. My name is Robert Kilty, and in this second episode, we talk with Jamila Pitts about racism, the pandemic that never went away. In this conversation, we learn from Ms. Pitts on what it means to be anti-racist at a school and classroom level, and how to teach with activism for our students, and how to teach with care for our students. Jamila has extensive history as an educator, consultant, yoga teacher, curriculum designer, and writer. Jamila's work centers on the liberation, healing, and holistic development of youth, particularly children of color, through an emphasis on adult and educator development, coaching, and training. Jamila partners with schools, leaders, organizations, and educators, providing training and thought leadership on anti-racist, culturally responsive, equitable, and restorative practices and frameworks, anti-bias curriculum development, and wellness and yoga practices as a vehicle for student and educator self-preservation. However, Jamila is not just a thought leader in the education sphere. She has served as a teacher, coach, dean of instruction, dean of students, and as an assistant principal. She has also worked for schools in Massachusetts, New York City, the Dominican Republic, China, and in India. Jamila, thank you for being here today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. With such an extensive background, Jamila, what led you to the classroom and what led you into education? It's a really, really beautiful question. Initially, what led me into the classroom as a teacher was just my love of learning as a child. I am a first-generation college student. My maternal grandmother did not complete high school my mother did not attend college. My father did not complete high school. And while those things seem like they would create a deficit, that was actually not the case in my household and in my upbringing. What that actually meant for my mother specifically was that she placed a really large emphasis on education and on schooling. She was my first teacher. I remember developing a love of reading and a love of books because she made the library seem really exciting and engaging. And it was a place that we were taken often. And I remember as a child, one of the main libraries in my city, I'm from Columbus, Ohio, originally, you could check out up to uh, 50 books from the library. And I remember that being something that I was really, really excited about. But outside of that, I really loved school. I absolutely loved my teachers. I did not have a white teacher until I was in fifth grade. And so I was able to be educated in a space where the teachers looked like me, where the students looked like me, where I was taught the importance of dreaming. And I remember my third grade teacher asking me to write an essay. And yes, in third grade, write an essay about uh, what we wanted to do and what we wanted to become and who we wanted to be. And I remember very vividly saying that I wanted to be a teacher. And she was the first person who allowed me to teach the class. And so I remember just having like a really profound appreciation for how teachers loved their students, how they showed up in the classroom, and how so much of who they were was connected to something that I loved so much as a child. As I got older, school for me really was a safe haven. I grew up in an environment, I think about like the words of James Baldwin and one of his essays, A Letter to My Nephew, where he says that this innocent country set you down in a ghetto. 
in which in fact it intended that you should perish. And so similar to many people of color in this country, I grew up in a neighborhood where the violence, where the trauma was not separate from this intentional design of this country, this deliberate design to destroy Black bodies. And so in describing my neighborhood and my environment, I think it's really important that I take that stance and thinking about it in that way, as opposed to thinking about it in a kind of like a deficit mentality. But all of that fueled just like my love of school and my love of education, because it was a place that I was very much an exception. School was a place where I could excel, even though I understand now that it is a place that traps a lot of students and keeps them from being able to access opportunity. It was the opposite for me. As a young adult, I went to an HBCU. I went to Spelman College and I still knew that I wanted to be an educator, but it was in this place specifically that I understood the civic part and the social responsibility of teaching and of education. And I did not see that separate from the work of social justice and the work of anti-racist work. And so it provided me with a more profound kind of foundation to understand why this work is so important. I absolutely believe that education can be used as a tool to oppress or it can be used as a tool to free depending on who you are, depending on where you live, and sadly, very sadly, depending on the color of your skin in many places. And so, yeah, I think I know that that's kind of a long answer, but those are some of my reasons for for teaching and for education. Thank you for sharing that. And on that topic of trauma, we've been thinking about day one and how we return to school, and specifically through the lens of a trauma-informed reopening of schools. And as we researched guidelines, spoken with experts in the field around trauma-informed schooling, and learned from superintendents and principals that have experience with post-disaster schooling, we've learned a great deal in terms of how to respond and better care and support our students as we return. But that being said, when I read your piece, Teaching as Activism, Teaching as Care, it felt monumental because your framing for teaching is what we are all striving for right now but we can't always name it. Can you speak to how you simultaneously frame teaching as activism and care? Yeah, and it was really difficult to name all of that in one particular piece. I think what's important to note is that often those particular words, ideas, actions, activism, and care are often seen as opposites. And I think it's really important to know that The two are not mutually exclusive. And I think that in order to do one, you have to have the other. I think this work of balancing that, and I think it's important to back up and to say that my context, because I am a Black woman in this country, my context in thinking about the world through that intersectional lens. And as an educator, that my focus is often thinking about Black children. And so when I think about activism and care. And when I think about the importance of trauma-informed work, I think one of the words that I constantly come back to is holistic. And so when I think about what it means to be an activist, when I think about what it means to be anti-racist, when I think about what it means to be an abolitionist in terms of teaching, in terms of educating, I think about the holistic approach that one has to take. And for me, This stems from the idea that this is very human work. Education is deeply humanistic work. 
who you are as a person, as an educator, directly impacts the way that you show up to your classroom. It directly impacts how you respond to children. It directly impacts what you believe about children. It directly impacts the philosophies and the mindsets that you hold as an educator or those that you choose to ignore. And thinking about activism and care, one of the first thing that comes to mind, I think about so many activists recently, or certainly in the past few years that have died. And I think about how that works in tandem with the lack of care. I think about the toll that activism takes on a person. I very much consider myself a teacher activist because of the stance that I take on education and its ties to liberation, to freedom, to truth telling. I think about the toll that it takes on a person, particularly a person of color. And when I think about using teaching as like a platform and a vehicle to also teach students the importance of advocating, care has to be a part of that. There has to be an understanding of the trauma that Black and Brown students are entering and Indigenous students are entering our classrooms with. And we cannot effectively teach them. We cannot effectively reach them. We certainly cannot ask them to advocate if we are not first caring about their well-being, if we are not caring about their bodies, if we are not caring about what is happening in their mind in terms of their ability to be well, I think that that is really, really important. You cannot teach or reach a student who is triggered often. I think about the work of Zaretta Hammond. She's the author of Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain. And a large part of her work focuses on this idea that you have to calm the amygdala down. So this idea that students who are in our classrooms, who are experiencing trauma, and not trauma just because often it is racial trauma, it is trauma tied to poverty, which is tied to race, or trauma that is associated with class, which is also tied to race. There is no possible way that we can ask students to learn to write a sentence or to craft an essay or to participate in a lab if they are constantly in this place of being triggered. And so care has to happen in tandem with that work. And, and quite frankly, it has to happen first. Students have to know that they're in a space where they can trust that they are safe. And many schools today are not safe houses. They are not safe places. In fact, many schools are really unsafe and they perpetuate the same harm and the same systems of oppression that we see in society that cause this trauma in the first place. And so it is important that there is this understanding that we are human as educators, that we have to take care of ourselves, that we have to unpack our biases, our beliefs, our mindsets, and particularly for educators of color, we have to make sure that we are well. And then we have to also make sure that we're creating spaces where our children can be well, especially as we are coming out of a place where it's been a mental, physical health crisis in terms of the pandemic, but we're also living in, and we have been living in a racism pandemic. And so it's really, really important that the work be done in tandem. Absolutely. And that really gets to this notion of what does it mean for our students to feel safe and well? And in that line of thinking, you have worked as an educator in school administration and now as a thought leader in defining the potential of classrooms as safe and a liberatory experience, as well as supporting schools into moving into those spaces. As schools plan their reopening after, just like you mentioned, two pandemics, the COVID-19 pandemic 
and the pandemic of structural and institutional racism inside the United States. What should every school leader around the world be thinking about as they plan day and week one? That's a powerful question. It's a hard question. I think that one starting place for leaders, for teachers, is thinking about what are the things that we absolutely need to leave behind? What are the practices? What are the policies? What are the things that we were upholding to be truths that we absolutely felt that we needed to have in schools in order for them to operate that we actually should leave behind? I think that one of the things that the pandemic, this forced pause globally, it's really shattered and destroyed a lot of what we thought that we needed as human beings. It has completely shifted the landscape of schooling. It has forced us to reimagine and to really be flexible in our thinking. And this is something that education really needed anyway. And so one of the places that I think that leaders can start is like, what are the things that we, there are some aspects of normalcy that we absolutely do not need to return to. That is a starting point. What are the aspects of normalcy that are rooted in oppression and in destruction to ourselves and to our students that we actually need to leave behind and that we don't need to carry into this new school year and that we don't need to incorporate into schools ever? And so there have been a lot of shifts around just curriculum design. There will certainly be shifts around conversations in terms of how many students need to be in a classroom. Certainly, the coronavirus pandemic has opened the door to questions around, well, what does schooling look like outside of the four walls of an actual school building? And in thinking about how schools have perpetuated and do perpetuate systems of oppression and racism, this is a conversation that we really should always be having. What does it look like to educate outside of these four walls, both literally and metaphorically? And so what are the things that we don't need to return to? Because normal was oppressive, normal in many places, and not just in the United States, I think is really important to name. Normal was rooted in racism and sexism and patriarchy in homophobia and many of these isms that absolutely don't serve our children, don't help our society, that don't help our country, that don't help us move forward in ways that will be impactful for ourselves, for other people, for the earth, for the world. And so I think that those are a few places to start. What are the things that we absolutely need to leave behind? If this shift required that we stop doing something or that we do something differently, how do we keep ourselves from running back to what we thought was normal? And where do we take that time to pause to think about what are the aspects of normalcy that were actually really, really destructive that we need to leave alone? And where do we need to create space and time and voices for other stakeholders, for our students, for our families, for other thought partners, for other leaders to help us think through, well, we know that we need to do something differently. We have to do something differently, but creating the time, the space to think about what that needs to be and what that needs to look like. This is the conversation we should always be having. Back in 2017, you wrote a powerful piece, Why Teaching Black Lives Matter Matters. And in this article, you state, all educators had the civic responsibility to learn and teach the basic history and tenets of this movement for racial justice. And right now, we are at a point where people are leaning into anti-racist work. But that also means we have well-intentioned teachers and principals, school leaders that need support and not only shifting how they teach, but also how we run our schools. And for those new to this lens of teaching, 
where should schools start to act upon this critical responsibility? Really, since the inception of this country, Black bodies have been killed in streets and destroyed in streets and in their homes and many other places. But we are in a place where the world seems to now really be awakening to this and to this work. Um, and so I get that question a lot. I think one of the most powerful places to start is with self. And so and thinking about before you can go and teach a class or teach a lesson about this, before you can ask your staff to reflect, to do something, the work really, really has to begin with self. And this idea of what is it that I believe about Black bodies? What is it that I believe about Black people in this country? What is it that I believe about the role of a teacher and the role of schooling? And one of the things that I find, particularly in this country and in other places that I have worked internationally, is this idea that teaching is apolitical. This idea that there are certain ideas, certain content, certain subject matter that teachers should not touch because it's political. And there is not this understanding. So the first I would say is starting with self. The second, which is really close, is like people have to be able to read and study. Teaching should be and is a highly intellectual field. And so there has to be a constant commitment to learning. And for a lot of teachers, there is not this belief. And perhaps this extends to the absence of understanding and the learning that schools have always been political. Schools have always been set up to advance and to perpetuate a political agenda, but there has to be an understanding as to which political agenda schools have been set up to perpetuate. And this country specifically, schools were set up, when we think about the earlier schools, women were not a part of those schools. Girls were not a part of those schools. The poor were not a part of those schools. Black people most certainly were not a part of those schools. The purpose of the schools were to be able to sustain and to promote democracy. And already they were set up only focusing on a very small group and built upon just the principles and ideas of erasure, of silencing and of exclusion. And so the second place has to be reading and understanding the purpose of schools, the history of schools, and thinking about how right now in 2020, schools in countries all over the world, particularly in this country, are still set up to be able to advance and perpetuate that same agenda to promote these racist, patriarchal, exclusionary ideas and beliefs. And if teachers don't understand that, if teachers cannot recognize that, if teachers cannot acknowledge that, then they perpetuate it. There is no gray area. So you are either perpetuating the problem, perpetuating oppression, or you are actively working against it to dismantle and undo it. There is no middle ground. I guess the third place then would have to be this kind of critical consciousness after you've had the conversations with yourself and after you've read is this idea of just like really being critical and consciousness about your role, about the roles of schools and where you are standing. So self study, critical consciousness. And for our listeners, Jamila wrote a follow-up piece, Bringing Black Lives Matter into the Classroom, Part 2, which has concrete examples of how to bring this work into our classrooms and schools around the teaching of historical and contemporary civil rights movements. And you can find this piece on our website for IB Voices at jamilapetz.com and on the Teaching Tolerance website, an incredible resource for all educators.
And as we think about the future with hopefully this collective awakening, you wrote another powerful piece for Ed Week recently. It's time to move beyond the buzzwords and reimagine schools. How would you reimagine schools and what buzzwords should we be cautious of as we try to move into a more action-oriented space? Those are really, really great questions. So as educators, a large part of our field, we like to cling to whatever new trendy buzzwords are out, culturally responsive teaching, social emotional learning, and now more recently, anti-racist work and even abolitionist teaching. They become these trendy buzzwords. Now these words alone, the phrases alone, this is really, really powerful and important work, but we have to be mindful of what that actually means. And I think that in thinking about abolitionist teaching and anti-racist teaching, what people have to understand in terms of that reimagining, there's a really phenomenal book, We Want to Do More Than Survive by Dr. Bettina Love, and she coins this term abolitionist teaching. She talks about the idea of freedom dreaming. And this is something that I experienced when I worked in schools and a part of what actually forced me to leave schools. When you say that you are doing anti-racist work, or when you say that you are committed to doing anti-racist work. And I have this conversation with people who come to me now who are seeking a partnership or wanting to work with me as a consultant in some capacity. I don't come in and just do one workshop or one training. This has to be an ongoing commitment to do this work because if you truly understand the way that racism permeates society specifically, if there's an understanding of how racism permeates schools specifically. And I think that racism is one of the important things to start with, but I really urge people to do is to think about a womanist approach. I think about intersectionality, Kimberly Crenshaw coined this term. She talks about like the multiple forms of oppression that can exist simultaneously. So if a person is queer, black, poor, and a woman, right, they are experiencing oppression, sexism, homophobia, classism and racism, it's really important to think about those marginalized groups, to think about intersectionality and an intersectional approach to this work, because then you are able to tap into multiple forms of oppression that exist simultaneously. And that is work that people are not ready for. So when people say that they are anti-racist, what you are truly saying is that you are working to dismantle and to undo all of the systems that have actually built and sustained our schools in the first place. Which brings me to this idea of what Dr. Bettina Love talks about in terms of abolitionist teaching. Truly to be anti-racist means that you are eradicating it. And so you have to really think about to reimagine learning spaces, to reimagine schools, you really have to think about something that does not exist yet. One of the things that I struggled with in working in a school that claimed to be anti-racist, and I was a leader, it felt like I was constantly warring against myself. Because here I am understanding all of the ways as to why and how a school is not racist, and then you are trying to undo that. You are trying to undo and dismantle something like as it is operating and as it is running, and then you don't have the time to think about well, how to do this differently. The interesting thing about this pandemic is it has absolutely forced us to think about that. And so we have to be mindful 
Same thing with culturally responsive teaching. I get a lot of people who reach out about that buzzword specifically, and they believe that it is an add-on. So I have my racist curriculum already. I'm operating within these racist, oppressive school structures already. Now let me add on this culturally responsive piece as opposed to understanding that that is a foundation upon which you teach not only Black children, but all children. And so a part of that reimagining, it has to be the undoing, it has to be the dismantling. And you cannot effectively do any of those things if you don't understand how racism works in the first place. Absolutely. And in terms of a quote that you wrote in Don't Say Nothing, we may be uncomfortable talking about race, but we can no longer afford to be silent. We have chosen a profession which, like parenting, requires that our comforts come second to those of children. And when you don't have the words and can't plan the lessons, don't just say nothing, say exactly what you are feeling. That will mean more to your students than you may ever know. And that quote has always stood out to me, Jamila, and I'm sure it does to our listeners as educators. And so on that note, any closing thoughts for our schools, school leaders, and educators to consider as we enter into this new era of coming back to schools? One of the things that we don't value and prioritize, oddly enough, in education and in schooling is time to think. We really don't prioritize that enough. I remember working in schools and running around so much that that there was not time to think, there was not time to breathe. And in order to do this work differently, in order to freedom dream, as Dr. Bettina Love describes it, you have to have the time to do that. You have to have the time to sit. You have to have the time to be with yourself. You have to have the time to examine your students, to listen to your students, to learn from your students. You have to have the time to think about how can this look differently? Goldie Muhammad has this really powerful book, Cultivating Genius, where she names one of the things that we don't use in schools. We don't use models of Black excellence when we are teaching Black children. We don't focus on those things. We focus on these very whitewashed, white dominant approaches to education. And we wonder why they don't work for Black children. And I could say that the same could be extended to countries everywhere, right? Where a lot of the foundational philosophies and principles in terms of how we teach and how we approach teaching our children are not actually rooted in their ancestry and their lived experience and their history. I mean, it doesn't work for them. Many countries were operating under this colonial spirit, and it's not working. It is not working for the people who are forced to suffer under it. It is working for the people who intentionally design those systems to remain superior. I think about the words of an artist, Carrie Mae Weems, where she says that there are other models by which to live, but you have to have time to examine and to study those other models so that we can think about how to do that. Many of the models intentionally have not been included in our history books. And it's been intentional that way. Like the stories of Black excellence, the stories of Black pioneers, the stories of Black thinkers, the stories of Indigenous excellence, Indigenous people, Indigenous histories, all of these different things that what really helped to propel us forward. We need the time to be able to pause, to think about that so that we can truly and effectively do the work that is most impactful for our children, for ourselves, for our society and for this world. Thinking About Day One, a trauma-informed reopening of schools is a proud part of the IB Voices podcast. 
To listen to more stories from the schools, students, and educators in the International Baccalaureate Program, subscribe to IB Voices on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about the IB, including how to become an IB school, visit ibo.org. Thanks for listening.